Hello and welcome everybody to another InventRight live stream. I'm going to talk for a little bit as you guys can type your questions in. I see there's a bunch of questions in here already. For those of you that are already here, I want to remind you that um, I can't always get to all the questions, but if you type them in early on in the stream that I tend to get to all of those. So I also want to remind you guys that our channel is all about licensing. So when you license a product, it's that big company's money, it's their workforce, and it's their existing distribution. You don't need to raise money, you don't need to hire employees, and you don't need to have distribution and connections with retailers because the company you license to, the manufacturer you license to, the brand you license to already has those. They have everything in place. So these companies that you'd be licensing to are like a machine. It doesn't matter if they have 50 products or 10,000 products. Yes, it varies that much depending on the company, um, but they have everything in place. You're tapping into existing distribution, their workforce, and their money because most of these companies for a product that sells well, they have unlimited money, they have lines of credits and things like that. They're dealing with a lot of cash flow. So when you license to them, if it's going well, they will have the money to fund it. Um, so if somebody can type in yes, that you can hear me, that would be great. Um, I'll just wait for that for a second here. And there we go. Okay, great. Thanks, Ivy, uh, J. Bell, Ethan and everybody else. Um, okay, so let's jump in. And Anto, I will get to your question. I see you're from India, that's pretty cool. Um, so I think we got enough uh, questions in here to get started. And you know, it always takes a while for everybody to file in. Um, usually, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 minutes in, we have like five times the number of people. Um, okay, so J-Bell said, hi, Andrew. Uh, can you recall any successful packaging licensing deals within the InventRight family other than Steven's pill bottle? Is there a general royalty rate for them? Yes, we've had students do uh, license packaging stuff. I can't remember a particular one off the top of my head, but when you're working on uh, a packaging innovation, so um, that is not the product itself. So uh, a packaging invention is the, the package that a product goes in. So for my business partner's invention, who is the other co-founder here at InventRight, for a round bottle, I don't have one right here, so I, I should, but there's a label on top of a label and the top label spins so you can see the information on the bottom label allows you to include 75% more space in the container. So that could be put on vitamins or I think it was on some liquor products and things like that because you can also do lenticular where it shows a little animation and stuff. But the point there is, um, that the invention itself is not the product that this the invention is the packaging that a product goes in so the tough thing about packaging innovations are they sell insane volume like crazy volume like hundreds of millions of units or god knows how much and so that label or the package might be used on five different companies packages you might license it to a contract packager that then uh when they're packaging products for a vitamin company here and a liquor company there, this or that, they can put this new package on there or whatever type of package it is. So they're extremely difficult deals to close because there's so much money involved. So the things I'm going to share with you right now, I'll take a sip of water and then I'm going to share with you. The things that I'm going to share with you right now, guys, are not applicable for most of you um, unless you have a packaging product. For regular products, these things do not apply. 
But if you've ever been thinking about doing a packaging-related invention, the modifying the package in whatever it is that the product goes in, um, here's why it's very, very difficult. But here's also why you can earn a lot, a lot of money with it. <coughs> um, so <coughs> uh, you need to, these types of companies, packaging companies are very, very large. There's a lot of money involved. And there's a lot of money involved with regular inventions too. There's a lot of money involved. Um, and so this is not true for the typical invention, but they will try to figure out a way around you if they can, because there's so much money. They're selling like a bazillion packages a, a year or what have you, right? And you know, you're going to get a royalty on every package. It can add up to an insane amount of money. So you have to have one, and this is not the case for most of the products you guys are working on, but it is for packaging. You have to have a lockdown understanding of the way that that packaging product is going to be manufactured. And then you need patents and intellectual property surrounding the way that that product is going to be manufactured. Okay. Now, this is true of, of just, I'm just talking about uh, packaging products now. A lot of our students with, let's say it's a kitchen product, they don't know all the details of how this thing would be manufactured. They're literally saying, well, you know, there's that and that product. And I just put a hinge over here and they're like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, we got it. That's enough. We, we understand now. Um, you know, but the problem is with packaging products, people come up with these solutions, but the machinery can't even make it. Or you would need to invest a half a million dollars just to modify the machines to make this. Okay. So that is quite often a problem. So it gets really intense. It gets intense from a research standpoint of manufacturing, which is not required of other products. It gets intense from a, a cost standpoint. Yes, you can file a provisional patent, but, and I'm again, this only applies to packaging products. It's very common for a packaging innovation you're trying to license that deal to drag more than a year. Now, other products, no, you, you need a whole year, you get a provisional patent, you're good. But so what happens there is if for a, a packaging product, because they're tough to deal with. Now, other people like a year goes by and the inventor's like, well, I haven't done anything with it. I'm like, just file the provisional again. And what's the chance that somebody came up with in that period of time? But if you're working with a very difficult industry like packaging, if you do that, you could get yourself into trouble because you're not preserving that original provisional date. If you got a lot of traction and it's still lingering. So now you got yourself in that position after a year when the provisional before the provisional runs out, now you got to file a full utility. And with the packaging products, quite often, it's not one patent, it's multiple patents. So now, wow, now this is starting to get really expensive. So I need to get deep into the manufacturing of it. I need to really protect myself um, with regards to the, the, the intellectual property surrounding that manufacturing. And then I, I've got these very large, very, very large companies that if they have to make a change to the machinery, that's not good. Now, if you have the suggestion of what to change, great. Maybe they just change something a little here, but almost always they're going to need to change something. Now, if they can do it on existing machinery, you're, you're golden. And then also the last thing I'm going to do, I know I'm throwing a lot here, but a lot of you guys aren't working on packaging products. Um, if sometimes with a packaging product, if you add one cent, that's one cent too much. Don't think you can take a packaging product. Let's say it's something that's selling for $2.99 and think you can add 10 cents to the package and that's not going to be a problem with the manufacturer. So if you can deliver that new packaging innovation at literally the same price or lower, that's ideal. Now, maybe it can tolerate a penny or two, but don't think 
that whatever you're trying to create here, it's going to add a dollar to a $3 product. You're insane if you think that's going to work and they're going to agree to it. So those are all the reasons why packaging products are very tough. Now, if you pull all that off, the volume they do is, is crazy. And so you can make some really crazy money there. But lockdown understanding of manufacturing, lockdown intellectual property around it. You might need to file multiple patents, not just provisionals. Um, and if it costs too much to make, you're toast because they can't tolerate that price. I mean, let's say let's say you came up just randomly. Let's say you came up with a new packaging product for Coca-Cola. Let's say it had to do with the bottle. They sell at literally a billion Cokes a day from what I hear. If you add one cent to every bottle, are they going to want that? No. They're not. Now, that's kind of extreme. There are other products where, okay, it could tolerate a three cent increase or something like that, you know, but don't think it can tolerate a giant increase with your packaging innovation. So, Jayba, I can't think off the top of my head. We've helped people with packaging products um, without a doubt, but I can't think of a particular one that I can cite. Um, but I, we, we, we definitely help people with that. Um, Waleed said, hey, Andrew, can I send the same idea with new marketing materials to a company that refused the idea a year ago? Absolutely. Now, if they told you it won't work because of this, this, and this, and you haven't fixed those things, don't send to them again. Okay. Now, 90 to 95% of companies will not say that. They'll say really gray stuff like not at this time, not a right match, really general things. To reach back out to one of those companies with better marketing materials an entire year later, I think is a great thing to do. Um, and, you know, it's not just that your marketing materials are better, that they were poor before. It's where is their head at? So that marketing manager, they were busy before and they gave you kind of a not at this time or not a right match for us kind of answer. But then you reach out to them now and you get lucky. And before they were kind of inundated with other projects and they might actually liked your product, but they didn't want to say it, okay? Because they're too busy. Because then you'll never go away. And they're like, I don't have time to take this thing on right now. So I'm going to give them some generic, not interested reply. But now, let's say next week, you reach back out to them. And a week earlier, two weeks earlier, their boss said, we need new products. Now they're taking a closer look at your product, okay? So that's why it's always good to reach back out to, to companies, but not to the ones that said, it won't work because of this, this, and this. But so, yeah, Waleed, I would totally do that. Totally. Our students license stuff all the time that way. Um, BT says, hey, Andrew, thanks for the show. Can you talk about minimum guarantees? A high suggestion in negotiation may freak out the company. Yes, you're absolutely right about that. Can you give a ballpark? How can one estimate that for his or her product? Okay. So minimum guarantees when you get interest from a company, there's a lot of back and forth with the company. And that's via the phone or Skype or Zoom and email. Okay, It's definitely more email, but if you don't get on the phone, you're not a real person, that's the problem. You want to get on the phone. Oh, this person's easy enough to talk to. It doesn't mean you need to agree with everything, but it just means you're easy enough to talk to. Critical. Okay. Um, and as I stated before on many of these uh, Q&As, at least half of the information you should be asking them. So if you just sit around answering their questions, you'll almost never do a deal. You need to ask them questions. And one of those questions is, what do they think they can do? Where are they going to place this product? 
And, you know, they might brag about it on that first call where later when they're really interested, they might start to hold back a little bit. So it's really important to get that information. Sometimes they give it to you, sometimes they don't, but they can at least tell you where, if, if, if they were to take it on, where would they, where would they place it? So you need to interview them and then you kind of get an idea for what kind of volume they can do based on what they say they're going to do. Just because they're a big company, they might have small plans for your product. Now, they might be a medium to large size company, a little smaller, but they got big plans for your product. So it's not just the size of the company, but what's their plan for the product? So one of the things, guys, that BT is talking about here is minimum guarantees. That's one of the clauses in a licensing grant. And these, this is the minimum, this, a minimum guarantee is a minimum amount they need to pay you every quarter, every three months, regardless of what they sold. So let's say, let's just keep the numbers really simple. So let's say the minimum guarantee was $10,000. If they only sold $9,000 worth of product or in your royalties, they would have to pay you 10. If they sold nothing, they would still have to pay you 10. Okay. Now, if they sell more, whatever your royalty is, let's say it's 5% or 8% or whatever, they need to pay you more. So it's just the minimum amount that basically ensures they don't sit on the product and do nothing with it. And it should really be an amount that doesn't freak them out. You're very right, BT. It's, it's a fraction. It might be one-tenth of what you know that they can sell. But trust me, they don't want to keep paying you those minimums if they're not doing anything with it. And if the sales are that low, they're not going to want to hang on to it anyway, right? Now, they might keep going. So it gives you a right to take it back, but it doesn't, if, if they don't pay the minimums, it gives you a right to take it back. Do you necessarily want to do that? No, I mean, they might be struggling a little bit and the first quarter is super poor because ah, they didn't let their salespeople know in time. And second quarter, ah, still not that good. But then, then you're like, oh, hey guys. And, and you, you talk to them about it and they're like, and then the third quarter, it starts pumping, right? And then the fourth quarter, it's going up more and then it just starts to blow up. Every, every product's gonna be different. Um, but it shouldn't be the like really towards the amount that you think they can do, it's a fraction of that. I just came up with a random number on one tenth. Our negotiation coach helps her, our students figure out what makes sense. So, um, but you're right, you don't wanna freak them out with huge minimum guarantees. So it's, it's a fraction, whether it's a quarter, to a tenth of what they say they can sell, they really can't argue it. They try to argue it. I would say about last time I talked to a negotiation coach and when I was doing the negotiations, I would say, uh, I don't know, around 30 to 40% of the time, they'll argue about having a minimum guarantee at all. It's not negotiable, guys. And when you come back, maybe you adjust, you go a little higher and go a little lower. And you just say, basically, it's just going to ensure you can't just take it and sit on it. You don't necessarily want to use those words. Um, and you explain it to them and there's, they have no argument back. There is no argument back. And usually the argument is like, OK, fine, but lower. That's why you want to go a little bit higher, not ridiculously high, but a little bit higher than you're, you're willing to go. So you can give them some wiggle room. But almost every single time we can get them to agree to it. So uh, There's been a few times over our history where we couldn't but we did alternatives to minimum guarantees. If you don't have performance clauses in the contract, if they don't perform, you need to be able to take it back. That's why licensing is, you never wanna say, I wanna sell you my idea, I wanna sell you my patent, terrible wording. You wanna license it to them. And what licensing is, is renting or leasing it. And they can rent or lease it as long as they want, as long as they're meeting the criteria in the contract 
and minimum guarantees are one of those criteria. So you're absolutely right to give these insanely high minimum guarantees or make it the maximum of what they believe they can sell or what you determine they believe they can sell. That's going to be you're, you're going to you're going to kill a deal if you do that. And there's a lot of things you guys can kill deals and do things to kill deals. And um, we stop our students. We, we, we talk to our students that are kind of knowledgeable. And Paul's talking, well, well, I think this or that. And Paul's like, you don't want to do that. That's going to kill the deal. And he explains why. He's like, oh, crap. You know, oh, I, OK, I won't do that. You know, but the natural reactions a lot of inventors have to have about what should be in a licensing agreement, what the terms should be are, are pretty off the mark. Um, but hopefully that gives everybody, that's a great question, BT. Everybody is more knowledgeable about minimum guarantees. And I think it's also helpful to know that they'll argue, a good percentage of them will argue about having it at all, and it's not negotiable. Okay. Now, you don't start arguing about it. You state your case. And almost every time we've, we've got them to agree to it. So there's points in licensing agreements and negotiations where it's uncomfortable. But if you've got a good comeback that makes sense, you know, uh, then you're going to be fine. And only the most unreasonable companies will not will not budge. Um, sometimes it's good to move on to other things and come back to it. But uh, Tony said, Tony always has questions about DRTV, as I recall. Tony said, I know that some DRTV companies are moving to, towards retail lines. Have any of them stopped the TV ad campaigns altogether? I don't want to submit to companies who aren't doing TV campaigns. Well, pretty simple, Tony. Look up the as seen on TV companies. Look at their website. Look at their products. Google the products. See where it shows up. You'll know if they're advertising it or not. You know, um, so it is what it is. You know, um, Jeremy said, how often do you find a company is too focused on appearance instead of function when pitching? The prototype can't always look good enough for some, for store shelves. Um, I think that it's important where your virtual prototype or prototype, if you put it in your sell sheet or your marketing materials or your video, that it can't be so bad that it's distracting. Um, for about, I, don't, I would guesstimate it's about 85% of our students, we do a virtual prototype. Maybe the student has a decent, halfway decent looking prototype. It's kind of got duct tape on it and stuff. And maybe they use it in a video at a distance or they don't have a video at all. A lot of our students just do a sell sheet and we do a virtual prototype for them. And they're like, oh, that's what it's going to look like. Because you can make it pretty much exactly like or close to what you want it to look like. So virtual prototypes are great for that. Um, and so but sometimes our students will use their own prototype and it's perfectly fine. It depends. But if it's going to be so distracting, you know, you kind of want to show them what it's going to look like. So I really think the virtual prototype is the best way to go the vast majority of the time. But I've had students with like these beautiful prototypes. I'm like, just use that. Yeah. You know, it's not not a problem. Sometimes you use both. Sometimes you're using your cruder prototype, maybe in a video, but then in the sell sheet, um, you're using your virtual prototype. Or even in the video, there's a still image of the virtual prototype. And then later in the video, you're showing using your crude prototype and they get it. They're like, oh, that's what it's going to look like. Okay. That's a, you don't have to say it even, that's a cruder prototype. So just use logic. But it, sometimes people have such horrible, terrible um, uh, prototypes that it's like, well, we can't show that. That just looks like a kindergartner did it. And that's fine. Um, it's not a big deal, but you got to do a virtual prototype in that case. You know, um, it's, and I, we don't ever want one of our students or anybody to struggle 
with being able to license it. And the virtual prototype solves that entire issue. So who said you needed to go out and spend eight grand on a prototype? I didn't. Steven didn't. None of our coaches did. Why are you doing that? You know? And so some people think they have to have that, this production-ready, beautiful prototype. You're not selling a prototype or a patent. You're selling the benefit of your product. And if you have a beautiful virtual prototype and a nice marketing piece, they're seeing the benefit. And they go, well, if my customer saw this, they would buy it. It's not all about the prototype. So generally, I hope that's, hopefully that's helpful. And I can't comment on yours specifically, obviously, without looking at it. So every case is different. I Like I said, I have people like, oh, just, just use the picture of the prototype. But let's get it from this angle. And then the vast majority of people, we do a virtual prototype for our students, um, which they look great. They really do. Uh, Tony said, I just want to thank you for always being here to help your fellow inventors. It's incredibly what you do, especially since you're the only one and you do this for us for free. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, that's a good time for a little plug. If any of you are here, the way you can say thank you to me, and I'm going to keep going for the entire hour and answer more questions here, um, is to down below, if you're not subscribed, click subscribe, click the notification button, and, and watch a bunch of our, our uh, YouTube shows and and like them, comment on them, and that's the way you can say thank you. I also want to remind you guys, if you go to inventright.com, inventright.com, we got a free resources page. Um, if you're on the uh, on your computer, it's a big blue button in the upper right-hand corner. If you're on a phone, which a lot of people visit on their phone or the mobile, you click on the menu, you'll find it. It should be in there. I haven't done that myself. i got to check make sure that's easy, but I think it is. So subscribe to our free resources. There's a ton on there. Um, so make sure to check that out. I can't really answer this one from Stefan or Stefan. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing it right. What's the best way to pay for your taxes when companies pay you for your ideas? So, um, you know, you need to talk to uh, a tax attorney that understands uh, royalties. Basically, you're receiving a royalty from a company. So everybody's tax situation is different. So I'm not a tax advisor. I can't. Uh, comment on that. But that's generally available information out there. Now I page too far down. I lost my space here. Let's see. Um, okay, Matt said, thank you, Stefan. Uh, hi, Andrew. Thanks again for another Monday. I watched a video with, with Stephen and the executive from Hasbro. Uh, as they have a new system, they're ready to look at new submissions. Should I resend my ideas over again? Um, I don't know. The main The main thing that I think Hasbro has. I haven't watched the video that our other co-founder, my business partner, did with Hasbro. He's even had the time to watch all my videos, and I haven't watched his video yet. But the main thing that was cool with Hasbro, a lot of people were complaining with their portal um, that it was only for U.S. residents, not Canadians, not Europeans, anybody. So now it's nice that they opened that up to the world. Um, uh, I wouldn't hesitate to, to resend again. I don't know if their new system is going to see. It's really kind of a trip. My understanding is they have a, a bot that will read the submission and and then only, I believe, will will then put it in different boxes depending on you know what it says. And I think my guess is that sometimes people they see a company that has a web portal and they don't care to look at the company's product line. They're like, they're open to my ideas. And it's like, and Hasbro's doing toys. And they're sending a kitchen gadget. I know it sounds crazy, guys, but um, when we used to bring uh, companies on saying they're open to ideas, um, we couldn't, we can't do that anymore.
because there's too many inventors out there that are off their rocker, quite frankly, um, because like it, you'll see that this company is doing bicycle products and, and there Steven's doing an interview and saying, hey, they're open to ideas and they just get everything under the sun. They get a kitchen product, a gardening product. It's like, what are you thinking? Look at their product line. Only submit it to them if it's right for their product line. But Tony, if you already sent to Hasbro, obviously you have a toy. Was that Tony? Was that, uh, yeah, it was Tony. Um, you go ahead and send it again. So I don't think that was Tony. That was uh, Matt. Sorry, Matt. So um, I wouldn't hesitate to send it again. Maybe their system perceives it different. So they have real people reviewing it, but I think they also have a bot that kind of looks at it. If it says, here's my kitchen product, <laughs> probably going to go into a different box. And it's obviously a toy. But don't ask me how that works. I have no idea. They won't disclose that to us, of course. But um, but yeah, I, I think if it's been a while, I wouldn't hesitate to submit again. Um, especially if they didn't reply. Um, I mean, if they replied and said no, well, then maybe you need to move on to another company. And as we always say here at InventRight, if you, if you guys are looking for manufacturers, brands with portals, and I'll only go to the ones that has an inventor button or a submission page on the manufacturer's website, you're probably never going to license a product. You have to go to them on LinkedIn, via email, all these other techniques. Now, if you want to do the portals, plus reaching out to them the other ways, great. But just to think, oh, I have to have confirmation they're inventor friendly and they have a portal on their website or a page that says, this is how we work with inventors. Tons of companies are out there that if you got a hold of the marketing manager and you told me you had a product that's right match for their product line, they'll say, yeah, send it on over. You know, but I think inventors are so afraid of getting what they perceived as rejection on somebody saying no. So you reach out to 30 companies and some of them say no, you got to get over that. And they figure, well, if they have a portal, I'll go there. That's low-hanging fruit. It's comfortable. I feel comfortable with that. Well, that's amateur hour. So, okay. So you could do it. I don't have any problem with portals, but shit, I would reach out to another way too. I'm not talking specifically about Hasbro. I'm just talking about in general. Um, I think I just swore. Sorry. Uh, hopefully there's no kids watching. Turn off this phone here. Hold on a sec. There we go. Um, let's see what else we have. Another, what's, what's all these DVT, DRTV questions? They're not my favorite industry, but hi, Andrew. There has been discussion on here about DRTV and All Star in particular. I thought these companies do not make any products, only sell. Who's responsible for manufacturing it? They manufacture it. The Asino TV companies manufacture it. I don't know why you're under the perception they don't. What, what is true, though, is they're lazy about prototyping. Um, but they will get quotes overseas, and they're going to manufacture it. They have people they work with to get it made. It's not somebody else. So I don't know why you thought that. But, um, but they, some of them are a little lazy about prototyping it, and they'll ask for more from inventors. Um, but, you know, like I said, if you guys have a product that's an Asino TV product, more than likely it's also a standard consumer company. So maybe you're reaching out to five Asino on TV, and then you've got like 15 regular consumer product companies. Let's say it's a kitchen product that also do consumer kitchen stuff, okay? So, um, so the whole DRTV get-rich-quick thing, I, I think that's dying, to be honest with you. Um, in the back of the day, the DRTV guys, they're like, 
we we don't want a product that isn't a couldn't be a massive success on monumental scale and it's just going to earn us hand over fist money and that's pretty much what they're looking for um but i don't find that to be true they're okay with smaller type products now so there was a gentleman earlier that said if they're not going to put an ad on tv i'm not interested well okay but if you go to all the major drtv asking on tv companies nobody's interested well then you should be okay with a company that doesn't do an ad on tv but you're right when you when they do the ad on tv it could have huge potential. You create all this awareness and then it pops up in the big box store. Maybe the person wouldn't order from the 800 number. Almost nobody does these days. But then they're strolling down the aisle at Walmart or Target. They're like, oh, I saw that product. I know what that is because I remember the video. And they throw it in their car and they figure, hey, if I don't like it, I'll just return it. You know, back in the day, back eons ago, you know, these Asian TV companies were terrible. They get to you on the 800 number. They, they ship you twice as much as you order. They do all. They did all sorts of sleazy things. Some of these DRTV companies. Not anymore. I don't see that at all anymore. And and then um, and then they would make it impossible to return. They make it really hard to return. You got to do this and this and this. That's not. They don't do that anymore, guys. They they create awareness for the product. And maybe they they get a certain amount of orders on their website. But where they really want to make money, historically is in the big box stores. That's where the, 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 the money flies out. Now, what's changing a little bit about it with the DRTV guys that I'm seeing them do, they're starting to do like Facebook ads and this or that. They're starting to create lines for the retailers because the retails want, retailers want it. Um, and if your product fits into one of those lines, great. But if it doesn't, then maybe your product needs to be part of an entire line. Don't take what we say too seriously there. That was just uh, All Star that said that. So let's not get too obsessed. Sometimes we say things, all-Star said that to us. That's what they want. It doesn't mean that's what all the other DRTV companies want. Um, but they're not in the mindset anymore. Like, we just need the next massive, massive hit. They're okay with products that aren't the next massive hit now because that model doesn't seem to be working for them anymore. So, uh, da, 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 da. Matt says, thank you, Andrew, because I sent ideas before and they replied with look up these oh, oh toy brokers. What should I do? Thank you. Well, I mean, that's not good. You know, you're coming in the amateur portal and they're saying, well, go to these toy brokers. I don't think they're going to do that anymore. So I definitely sounds like it's been a while since you submitted a Hasbro. I would definitely go back. Um, now, they might be saying that to you because you're your presentation was so poor. They're like, we don't really want to deal with them. So we'll just tell them to go to a toy broker. Um, by the way, the only industry that has legitimate brokers that I'm aware of was the toy business. Most of these big companies, including Hasbro, that's why they came on with our, my business partner. They want to get ideas directly from inventors. It's not normal anymore to go through toy brokers and any broker or agent or invention promotion company I have never met an inventor in 22 years that has had an invention promotion company agent or broker license a product for an inventor. But we talk to people that have been taken. Usually it's around ten dollars or $12,000 from these invention promotion companies. And after about a year, they go, nothing happened. And they won't even tell me what comp some of them won't even tell you what companies they reached out to. All oh, those relationships are confidential. We didn't get interest. It's like, well, can you tell me who you reached out to? So if you're looking for somebody to be your agent or broker or one of these invention promotion companies, you're in a world of hurt. You need to reach out directly. You need to know what's going on. So Matt, I would reach back out to Hasbro, reach out to a whole bunch of other companies too, and, and know what's going on because you're freaking doing it. Okay. 
Okay, Anto said, I'm from India. Can I license my ideas to US companies? Yeah, and Anto, you shouldn't even really be trying to focus on companies from India because India has a different, um, it's very unlikely they're, they're going to respect your intellectual property or any provisional patent you filed or anything you filed. And really the American companies or Canadian companies or European companies or Asian companies that are really big in the U.S. is the same as an American company. So if they have great distribution in the U.S., that's who you should be going after. You should not be even bothering with Indian companies. Yeah, I said it. Um, and we've had students in over 65 countries. And a lot of people initially, they're like, well, I'm in the Netherlands, so I'm going to start here, right? I'm like, no, you're going you're gonna to reach out to any company that's big in the U.S. So that could be a European, American, Canadian, Australian, any type of company. But if they're only in your home country, Anto, if they're only in India and they're not in the U.S., I just wouldn't bother. It's just so unlikely you're going to be able to put a deal together. Um, now, I've had, uh, for instance, I had a student, he licensed a product to a U.K. company, a company in the U.K. So you can license to European companies as well. But I will be very honest with you. If it's a company that's only in Europe and they're not in the U.S. at all, it's going to be a little bit harder because in Europe, they're still a little bit more old school. In the United States, it's like they, we believe anybody can do anything. They're not asking you for your credentials, what you licensed before. Companies will not ask you that. Once in a blue moon, one, one in a thousand, they will. They don't care. But European, they're like, oh, who are you? What are your credentials? Do you have a company? You know, but if it's a European company that's in the U.S., then that's the same as American companies. There's probably Americans working there. They've got the American attitude. So you're fine. But if it's a European company that's only in Europe, I was I think that's still legitimate to try if they're not in the US, but you're going to be a little less likely to license there. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, we always get this question every time. Is an LLC important to have? Yeah, I can't give you business advice. Another thing I share, sorry, I can't give you legal advice. Nothing I share with you today should be considered legal advice. What a lot, I can tell you what a lot of our students do. It's an LLC is just one more thing to do to file an LLC, which is kind of like a it's not a corporation, but it's a, a different type of entity. And it's very easy. And in some states, it's ten dollars a year. Some states, it's eight hundred thousand dollars a year, like in California. OK, last time I checked it was eight hundred. But it's something you need to maintain and pay for every year. It does reduce your liability. If somebody's going to sue somebody, hopefully they sue the company and not you because you got you're doing business under the LLC. But when you're licensing, what kind of liability do you have? You're not selling anything. Um, you're trying to license it. So is somebody going to slip and fall on your sell sheet? Is somebody going to sue you because they didn't like the words you used when you talked to them? Like your liability is extremely low. Now, um, one of the things that our negotiation coach has been trained to do, we will not let one of our students sign, if it's the, the inventor is in the United States, a licensing agreement without it being under an LLC. So the company doesn't care. When you're reaching out to, to companies, they don't care if you have an LLC or if it just said Bob Smith Designs at Gmail, has your cell phone number, and it just says Bob Smith Designs product developer or inventor or whatever the hell you want to put. Okay. And then they don't care. They really don't care. They're not looking it up. They don't care. Okay. Now, when you get in the midst of your deal, you could be even pretty far in the, the negotiation and you could have the con be a contract point. And, um, and then you just say, hey, I, I'm going to be doing this contract under this new LLC. I just filed it. They're like, okay, we don't care. 
but you don't want to do it under your own um, name because that opens you up for some liability. I've never had a student of ours in 22, going on 23 years now, I need to check, it's 23 years, um, that has ever gotten sued by a company or a consumer. We've had students license knives, um, uh, military stuff, ladders you could fall off or ladder devices. So you're covered every which way till Tuesday when you do a licensing agreement. And so here's all the ways and I'll keep it short and then I got to move on. Um, first of all, you insist you're covered under their product liability insurance. They don't know this. The marketing people never know this. We always have to go, no, double check. It's covered. So if you're covered under product liability insurance, all of them, I wouldn't work with a company that didn't have it. They have a million or two million of product liability insurance. It doesn't, I've never had a single inventor ever where it would cost that company one cent more to put you on their product liability insurance. Then they always say, well, we can't do that. No, no. And we, and our negotiation coach always comes back. No, tell them, check with your insurer. We're 100% sure it won't cost you anything more. And then they come back and they're like, oh, okay. And so that's important. Um, then if somebody wants to sue you because they got hurt with the product, they don't even know you exist. I mean, we got a few companies where they put the inventor on the package, but that's extremely rare. And even if they did know you exist, they looked up a patent or something, they want to sue the company, not you. And I haven't even heard of that. I haven't heard like, oh, you know, the company's being sued. They probably wouldn't share it with the inventor anyway. But never heard of that either. But if it did happen, they're going to sue the company, not you. So that's another form of protection. Um, and then if it did it come back to you at some point for some reason, first of all, you have that one to two million product liability insurance. I don't see how it could get past that. But if they did sue you, you're under that LLC and it's just an empty shell and they can't as easily get to you. So it's not something if you have a lot of assets, if you got millions of dollars in the bank, that should be something you're worried about. Or even if you don't. But we've got that covered every which way until Tuesday. Never, ever seen a problem. But that's why we don't let our students, even though it's never been a problem, do a deal under their own name. We always say that has to be under an LLC. But do you want to do it now or do you want to do it in your midst of the first deal? you got a lot of stuff to work on. You know, so he said, well, I want to do LLC because I want to do write-offs. I'm like, well, but the whole event right approach is setting it up so that you're spending next to no money to try to license it. So now maybe you have a very difficult, complex project where you did have spent a lot of money on it. In that case, an LLC and having write-offs might be beneficial. So you have to, con you know, talk to your tax advisor there. Um, all right. So thank you for that question, Todd. Wow, I got two in a row. Okay, that was for Jacques and Todd. So, okay. Um, Omar, hello. Can someone license an idea from some project from overseas, Middle East, and what and what make it makes it different than being in the USA if the company's based in the USA for the whole process? Yeah, so Omar, that I, I answered that before. Um, yeah, you can definitely be overseas anywhere in the world and you can license the product. You can also don't give I don't want to give you guys the impression you can license the companies around the world. I'm just telling you that the vast majority of our students are licensing the companies that have massive distribution in the U.S. And that can be companies around the world. But there are opportunities. I'm not saying if you live in um, Germany, you might have a few German companies you want to reach out to in addition to all the companies that are selling in the U.S., I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying it's much less likely that you're going to close a deal with a company that's not selling in the U.S. than one that is. So, but, and if you only focus on your home country, don't even bother. Don't even 
bother trying to license if that's all you're going to do. If you're going to do that in addition to reaching out ones in the U.S., great. You're doing a great job. Okay, so that's the main point there. Uh, Jag, oh, good. I like this question. It's interesting. I like getting, it's not new. I've gotten this before, but Jag Pret, um, how do you, how do we deal with patents that have been abandoned? Okay. So it depends. I mean, if the patent's been abandoned for a long time, that's abandoned. It can't be revived. There's a short window in there where the inventor can go in and try to revive it and pay the fees. Um, but if it's been abandoned, it's been abandoned for a long time. That is what's called public domain. So anybody can do it. And also that's true with expired patents too. Once the patent expires, anybody can do what was in that patent. But what if you have an improvement to it? So you could license basically that same thing with the expired patent. Let's say, let's talk about expired patents for a minute. And you got an improvement, but nobody can do your improvement because you filed a PPA or a patent later on the on an improvement to it. But anybody can do on the, that expired product. Let's say that expired invention is, is this, but you add a hinge to it over here. Well, that patent that's expired, you know, anybody can do this, but they can't add that hinge. Okay. And no, we're not adding hinges to pens, but you get the idea. They can't add that hinge because you got protection on that. So that's the way that works. And it's the same deal with an abandoned patent. You know, it's all public domain. Anybody can do it, but you could protect an improvement. So if the product makes sense and it's not in the marketplace, you should still try to license it. But you should try to have some improvement. It might not be that significant, but and 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 get a provisional on that. Company may say, well, we don't care about patents. Great idea. We'll pay you a royalty. Or patents are important, and then you can file um, the, the product with that improvement that you're making. Okay. Um, v said, hi, everybody. Hey, V. Um, okay, Leaf, who's also a regular, I think. Uh, do people commonly try to license both the provisional patent and the marketing name? Is it common to ask to have a hand in the marketing reaching out to content creators, social media promoter? Okay, so with licensing, even though it's amazing, it, it has some downsides. So the amazing thing is you don't need to use, reuse or risk your money. You get all their, you get their entire company working for you, sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising, you don't need to hire employees. Um, and you're tapping into their existing distribution. So you got this massive distribution. You're only reaching out to companies that already have that. And you're tapping into that. And you know, your product's just part of their pipeline. Amazing. Now, what's one of the downsides? Well, it's their product now. Now, you didn't sell it. You rented it. You licensed it but you don't have complete and total control over everything. So if they want to make a pink and you want to make a purple, you don't argue about it. You might give them your opinion on why, but ultimately, you know, you can put whatever you want in the contract. If you're one of those weird inventors that want to beat them up about every little thing, you'll probably end up killing the deal. And you might, but you might fight over something significant or, or something like that. But if they want to make pink, you want to make it purple, you know, you're probably not going to argue over that. You might ask them why and, little bit and go, okay, if that's, if you found that primary colors work for this, okay, I'm going to go with your expertise. Um, now that same thing applies to the name. People fall in love with the name, you know, or the particular approach to the marketing and they may want to go a different way and you shouldn't argue with them because they probably have a good reason to. Now you can discuss with them. Well, I think it would be good to go this direction and you, you got to be careful about when you discuss that. Maybe it's not early on. Maybe they start to think you're difficult. Maybe you talk about it later, you know, um, but they may not like the name of your product, you know, and they may want to name it something different. 
So you got to be okay with that. You know, now if you're not, you can kill the deal. If you want to kill the deal over them wanting to name it, and you're just absolutely in love with the name and they want to name it something else. I think it'd be pretty stupid to do that 99 times out of 100. Um, but that can happen. So you lose a little bit of control. Um, but you know where you gain like incredible control is the contract. So if they don't perform, you can get it back. You know, you didn't sell it to them. They're just going to sit on it and do nothing with it. You're going to get that sucker back if, if they fail in some way. Um, but in, you need to have all those terms in the contract. We talked about minimum guarantees earlier. That's just one of many terms in a licensing contract. Um, so the other part of Lee's question is, are they okay with me helping with the marketing? And, uh, you know, content creators, social media and stuff to promote it. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. You need that's something you need to talk about. And if that's something that's really important to you, you should talk before signing the agreement. What, what are you interested in my help? They might say, oh, yeah, that would be great if we got some articles about the inventor. And other people are like, no, nah, we're, we're very, we're very uh, protective of our brand. You, you shouldn't do anything without asking us first. And some might be in the middle, like, well, you know, I don't know exactly what you mean, but yeah, just. Uh, throw it to us first before you do anything. This is like the middle, right? Let's take a look at it. And if we're cool with it, yeah, that sounds great. You know, so every company is going to be different as to how much they want you to stay involved. Um, most of them aren't. You're not their business partner, okay? You're, their, you're the licensor. They're the licensee. And some of them want you to stay involved, but it's not like you're, you're taking it on a full-time job and they're going to expect you to do this. It's more the other way around. It's more like if you offer it, some of them might be open to it, okay? Um, I really don't think most of the time it makes sense for you to get paid to do that either. Some people have brought that up. It's a possibility. You really got to look at all the deal points. This is your product. Um, but every company is going to be different. So, But you could decide, I want to do a deal or not do a deal because they want to make it a different color or name it something else, or I don't agree with their direction, or... Um, I have to be involved in every little aspect of the marketing. Well, that's probably going to freak him out. But what if you get a long growth guy and he's like, oh, yeah, I love your ideas. That's great. You, you kind of keep going. You're going to get a feel for that when you're in uh, uh, the negotiations and just talking to him about the product and stuff. You'd be surprised. Some of these marketing managers are very friendly and we, their students have great relationships with them. Other ones, it was uh, great. And then it was a little difficult during the negotiation. And then it came right back to it. You know, it's kind of you're in negotiation mode at some point, right? But those early calls and emails, you're not so much, but you are, you are, you should be, but you're, you're, you're kind of um, collecting the information to move the deal forward. Uh, to do... Okay. Um, no, we, we have 3D designers, Jonathan, so we don't need help with the 3D design work. We have a pretty big staff for our graphic design and 3D design department. Thank you for offering them. Uh, please tell my son Aiden for helping his, his helping me to license. Well, Aiden, you know, good for you for helping your 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 parent parental unit there. That's amazing. So if you're listening, um, good for you, man. I don't know how old you are, Aiden. Um, that's fantastic. Okay, Jan, I currently have a large e-commerce company interested in my product, but they don't do manufacturing. Going forward, how can I use this leverage when contacting 
a company for a licensing deal. So that's what we call pull through marketing. So if you have a retailer, they're essentially a retailer. You said they're a um, large e-commerce company. So they like your product, but they, they just sell product. They don't manufacture anything, right? So they're a retailer. They're the same as a Walmart, a Target, a Walgreens, a Rite Aid, a Home Depot. It's the equivalent of that. So when you're reaching out to companies, you can mention that I have a very large e-commerce. It's a little thing in your email when you send your marketing materials. And I just want to let you know, I have a very large e-commerce company that would love to buy this if you were to license it. So you can kind of do, so this kind of, it can be nice. You know, they probably want to introduce it to all the places they currently sell. That's the whole point of licensing. But if they can get started with an initial order, in addition to going out to their people, that's nice. It's not necessary to close licensing deals, but it is a little added bonus. Like, I, I love that. That's great. We don't typically teach our students to reach out to retailers because they get a little pissed because then the buyer at some big retailer, oh, this is interesting. What's the price sheet? And I was like, oh, no, well, I'm, I'm looking to license this to you, God, to a comp one of your vendors. Would you buy it? And they're like, oh, God, you're now you're wasting my time. So uh, you can do it, but it's a little awkward. Um, and it's really not necessary to close licensing deals. But sometimes you get a bunch of companies and they were kind of showing interest, but not really committing. You can go back to retailers, get some interest, and then go back to them and say, oh, the buyer at so-and-so wants it. Might you reconsider? So you can do that, but usually it's a secondary thing to do. I don't think it's a, there's a need for a, a primary um, to start with reaching out to retailers. You reach out to manufacturers that sell to retailers. Okay. Um, Jacques said, which is better doing it yourself or going through a big company? I don't think there is a right or wrong Jacques, but people are uh, dramatically misinformed about what it takes to run a business. So what I'll say about that is retailers don't like one product companies. If you start a business and you're selling this one product, almost none of them will take you on. Now I've seen people do it. You can fight tooth and nail and get in there. But guess what? You're going to get kicked to the curb pretty damn quick, even if your product is selling well. So you're saying, well, why is that, Andrew? Well, when you are a one skew one product company, let's say the products of Bed Bath & Beyond, you're not getting much, if any, next to no FaceTime with the buyer at Bed Bath & Beyond or whatever buyers there are, particular buyer, right? Um, but that big company that has 15 products in the store is. So when you license to a big company, not only can they get it into the retailers, but they maintain the relationship and keep it in there. They might be calling the buyer, getting a new product, maybe yours, onto the shelf and going, hey, Bob, the buyer at Bed Bath & Beyond, there's a lot of bees there, huh? Um, we want to put this new one on the shelf and we'll give you a discount on this other one. And they're like, oh, okay. And guess what? Now they need to make space on the shelf, right? They're looking around and they see you, let's say, Let's say you're trying to venture it. Let's say you begged and pleaded and you got into Bed Bath & Beyond with your one product, you know, which they don't like because they know you're not going to deliver on time. You're going to quality control issues, cash flow issues. That's why they worry about one product companies. They don't know what the hell you're doing. But let's say you got in there and they're talking to this, this uh, manufacturer's rep. Let's say it's the company you licensed to, right? And they, they're, they're doing everything. They know all the little tricks to get the products in the store, right? They're giving a discount on this one to get your product in there, right? And now they're looking around to make space on the shelf in their particular category because they can only take on so many products in a particular category. And they're kicking that inventor, small company with one product. That's the first one they're kicking the curb. They don't care. Your product could be doing fairly well. But hey, this guy's giving me a discount to put this other product on the shelf. Well, okay, bye-bye. 
you know? Um, so do you want to be the inventor that's with that company where the manufacturing rep is constantly visiting the buyers, not only getting in stores, keeping in stores, in stores or do you want to be the inventor that's trying to sell it themselves and getting kicked to the curb frequently because you're not big enough because you don't have a product line. So when an inventor starts their own business with one product, you will not survive. Guaranteed. You have to come up with a product line and say, well, but Andrew, that's not what I intended. I just want to sell this one product. Retailers will not take you seriously with one product. They might for a short period of time if you're really, really sharp, but most of the time they won't. So and then people, they, you know, you're not starting and selling your product unless you're selling on Etsy or eBay or something. Um, you need hundreds of thousands to barely get started on a on a 50 cent product. People underestimate what kind of money it really takes. And yeah, you could sell a few here or there on Etsy and go, well, I have 10,000, so I'll do that. But then you're just giving people plenty of opportunity to knock you off. So one of the biggest forms of protection is not patents, but first to market. So when you license a really big company and that company's in Bed Bath Beyond, Walmart, Walgreens, and Rite Aid, boom, you're, you're the, you're, your product and that company you license to is the first to market big way everybody else is a knockoff. Now, when you sell it on Etsy or eBay or even on Amazon, some sort of half-assed way, you're just giving everybody an opportunity to knock you off. And they're going to think you're the knockoff because some other bigger company took it on and did it bigger than you did. So best form of protection is to license it. It's not patents. It's to license it and be first to market. I'm not saying patents aren't protection too, but if your company is selling 80% and let's say the product's doing really well, there will be knockoffs and knockoffs are selling 20%. Company you license to might send a cease and desist. And guess what? It doesn't cost them anything to send a cease and desist. That a lot of those little guys that are knocking it off, they're afraid of that big company because they're a big ass company and they're saying a cease and desist. But you're selling on Etsy and eBay and you have your attorney, you pay them a bunch of money and you send a cease and desist. Are they going to take you seriously? Probably not. Probably not. Because it's, you know, it a patent is only a right to sue. Even large companies aren't suing everybody that's knocking their product off. God, no, they don't want to spend that kind of money. They, they don't have that kind of money, you know. So, so being first to market is, is a huge form of protection there. Uh, let's see. To do. Mike, repair stuff. Thank you, Andrew. My inspiration is helped by your words. Thank, thank you, InventRight. You're welcome. You're welcome, Mike. Um, so, Jacques, boy, that was, a, that was a full answer to your doing it yourself or going through a big company. Um, with all that said, is there anything wrong with starting a business, making and selling a product yourself? Of course not. But most creative people that are inventors, here's the, here's the test. If you're going to start your own business, sell the product yourself, you need to be more excited about all the crap that goes into running a company than the product itself. You cannot, the being excited about the product itself will not work. You need to be excited about having employees and building a company culture and managing those people and all that. If you're, you've always wanted to own your own business and you're really driven about by the fact that you want to run your own business and you have at least hundreds of thousands of dollars just to get started, um, then it might be right for you. Um, you know, there's this one guy, uh, I, I remember him actually, is like, we interviewed him and he did a product called CrossNet. It's like a volleyball net that has four sides. So you can play with four people. It's like smaller pretty cool. 
by talking to this dude, he was like, I think when he started, I don't quote me on this. I think he was like 24, 25 or something like that. He was so excited about starting a business with his buddies, with his friends. I don't know if they're college buddies, whatever. I could tell this dude was more excited about starting a business and company culture and doing all this stuff than even the product. He was like, don't get me wrong. He's excited about the product. I don't find that to be true of most inventors. Most inventors are excited about their product. And once they are shown the licensing path of getting them to take all the risk and do all the work, as opposed to the venturing path, they're like, oh, no, it's simple, Andrew. I want to do licensing. But a percentage of you might want to do venturing. But you have to be more excited about running the business than the product itself. The product, excitement about the product itself or going, well, I could get I could get you know, 500 made here. It's like, that's just the beginning. What about the marketing? What about all the money? You know? So there is no right or wrong. It's what's right for you. But I find most of the people that follow us, licensing is the right path. But I'm not going to tell you it's never the right path for anybody. I just gave you a, an example of one guy that he's he's having a lot of fun. I'm involved in this micro VC lending um, uh, company. And I saw him on there. I'm like, oh, I know him. You know, so now technically I'm funding him because I'm doing micro VC lending um, to people that want to start their own businesses. Um, so hopefully that was helpful, guys. Let's see what else we got here. Uh, da, da, da. Oh, okay. Uh, Todd said, where would you suggest to find the best economic prototyping? I, it all depends on your product, Todd. I have no idea what it would depend on. I might look at your product and go, why do you need a prototype on that? Just do a virtual. I might look at it and go, oh, I see the reasons why you need it. You know, and it's not, sometimes people think like, oh, 3D printers are cheap now and 3D printing's cheap. It's like, yeah, if it's small, and but what you're paying for is some guy to do all the computer-aided design work in order to pump that into the 3D printer. And 3D printing quite often isn't right. Sometimes cannibalizing product is better. Um, so, uh, Todd, I, I can't tell you. It depends on the type of prototype. And I, I, I'm guessing there's a good chance if I saw what you had, I go, here's a workaround so you don't have to do it. Or here's, here's something you could do yourself. And then... Um, and then why don't you just get a virtual prototype done or what have you? It really depends. So I can't specifically answer that question, but a vast majority of the time when people think they need a prototype, they don't. But I can't say there's plenty of cases where it does make sense. Uh, Alexandria said, I can't wait. Yeah, I saw your comment there before too in the, on our YouTube video. Can't wait to get more videos with Paul Sorensen. Seems to be a little shy and humble, but a lot of experience. Yeah, Paul's amazing. Steven and myself trained Paul to be our negotiation coach. He's done so much of it. He's he's very very good at it. Um, so I I really believe in Paul. He's amazing. Um, we just had one of his um, students on that we he helped close a deal, and now they got she's got another deal um, on the in the works. So that was cool. If you got you guys can check out the YouTube channel if you want to check that out. Um, let's see what else we got here. Uh, Todd said, can you suggest three or four trade shows to attend that would help inventors? No, uh, that's not really the way it works. Um, so going to a trade. So first off, there aren't trade shows for inventors. Um, Steve and I are, are discussing with an international organization on doing some sort of version of a trade show. But historically, there was an invention promotion company that had a trade show that was for inventors. 
there was um, um, uh, there was one down, a legitimate one that was down. It was eons ago, guys. That's how long I've been around. But down in Los Angeles called Invention Convention. Um, that's not what you guys want to do. Now, with the angle, if we end up doing something, it's a whole different angle. So it doesn't apply to what we may do in the future. Um, but you want to go to the trade show in the industry of your invention. It's just that simple. You don't go to an invention trade show. You go, if you have a bicycle product, I don't think Interbike is around anymore, but I've been to it several times. There's a, a bicycle trade show in Vegas called Interbike. If you have a pet product, you go to SuperZoo in Las Vegas, okay? There's also another one that happens in Florida. Most of these always are in, most trade shows are in Chicago or Las Vegas with a few in Florida or LA, but very few. Chicago and Las Vegas, I'm just guesstimating, guys, but the, the major industry trade shows, that's probably like 80% of the shows are in one of those two places. Um, so what was the, so so if you had, so if you had a, a pet product, you go to SuperZoo. If you had a hardware product for the, for the, you know, a new hammer, or a new uh, something like that, you know, you're going to go to the hardware show. You go to the show in the industry of your invention. T I think it's tsnn.com is a place where you can look up trade shows, tsnn.com, a trade show, or just type in trade show directory or directory of trade shows in the United States. You'll, you'll find a few. Um, so that's the best advice I have for you there, Todd. Go to the trade show in the industry of your invention, okay? And there's a whole approach for work in those trade shows. Let's see. Uh, Daily Jerk said, uh, I want to do sports wine brand, but, the, but there is another company that has exclusive property rights. Is there something Eventrite could do to help me negotiate negotiate for me? I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know if you're trying to license a sports wine. Um, did you type that wrong? Sport, that seems like a contradiction of sports wine. Um, so I, I, I can't answer your question. I don't understand um, what you're trying to do there, but I'm sure if I did, I, I could. Um, Uh, Antonio said, Andrew, does it make sense to have another product developer that's already has connections in the industry and in what you're trying to license and asking them to partner up? No, for the most part, it doesn't because they're always going to be more excited about their products than yours. So I've had people try to reach out to former InventRight students and try to get them to do it. And there's really not a lot of interest there on their part because they got their own products they're working on, you know. Um, but the, it's very easy to make connections in any industry, guys. And that's how I'm going to wrap this up. You simply work on your first project. So if you got a kitchen product and you reach out to 30 kitchen companies, the 27 that weren't interested in that product, you just made a relationship. You got their email, you can send them new products. And so you didn't get rejected from 27 people. If only three showed interest, you made the connection. That's how you make the connection. And just merely by conducting yourself professionally, like we teach our students to do, not all inventors are, they're going to be okay with you sending them more products. So it's just that simple. You don't don't be lazy and go, well, I don't want to build that. I don't want to reach out to a bunch of companies, then work on another product in that category. And then, uh, you know, maybe out of the 30 companies you reached out for the kitchen cutting board, the garlic press idea makes sense for 20 of them. You got to look at their product line. Um, but that's the best and the easiest way. It's not rocket science to make relationships. 
any inventor you reach out to is going to be more into their products than yours, you know? And um, so that's, that's my advice there. All right, guys, um, we're about five minutes over. I want to remind you guys uh, to check out our free resources on inventright.com. I will type, I'll type our website in there and check that out. Also, as a favor to me for answering your questions for free for a full hour, down below if you're not subscribed, click subscribe, click notifications. Um, we had about 4,000 people watch my live stream um, recorded from the last one on last Monday, which is really cool. I'm not sure, sure why why that one was so popular. We're trying to figure that out. Um, maybe it's just random Google algorithms. I don't know. But I remind you guys, take care, keep inventing. And we have a coaching and mentoring program. So if you guys want to check that out, you can go to InventRight and click on services. And we guys can, we can guide you guys. We guys. We can guide you guys to help. And if you're interested, you can click on contact us. Talk to Dana or Sylvia. They're both super friendly. Even if you're like, well, I'm not ready to do anything yet, but you kind of want to know how we help. Just so you know, you're ne they're never going to hound you or anything. They're really cool. That's how our company is. So don't hesitate to book with them and talk about how we can help. And even if you're not ready yet. Okay. See you guys. Bye. Take care. Keep it Bye.